Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. We are so happy to have you with us. A quick reminder, our town hall hour-long special with Ken Burns for his stunning new documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, will be tonight here on this program and be replayed multiple times. It's the best appearance Ken has ever made on our show, and this is definitely his best film since The Roosevelt's, if not his best film since baseball. It's just incredible. Right now, I am so pleased to welcome back Thea Harper and her segment, The Minority Report. Hello, Ms. Harper. Hey, John. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. I, I got to tell you the truth. I was really hoping that you would pick up on this particular story you want to discuss tonight. It's nice that we get to talk about Disney movies for once. Can you explain to me the controversy about The Little Mermaid? Because I know the whole big thing Disney now is, you know, they still make good new movies, but they're really into taking their old movies that are cartoons and casting them with actors and shooting live action versions of them. Some of them are good, some not so good, but they're trying to do it again and it's caused some controversy. Yeah, so pretty much Haley, uh, uh, Halle Berry, Halle Berry, oh, Halle oh. Bailey. <laughs> um, she's a singer um, uh, and actress, and she has been casted as Ariel in uh, Little Mermaid, and she is black. And there have been people um, that are upset about it, pretty much. Like, I don't know uh, how else to say it. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I read a quote the other night on the air of uh, one of our right wing friends who literally was upset because um, mermaids couldn't have melanin They're They live deep in the ocean. So, of course, they'd be white. He was literally trying to make a scientific argument for why you couldn't have a black woman play a mermaid. That, that's how mad they are. They're coming yeah. up with reasons as to why mermaids can be black. And these are the same people that probably never really cared about the Little Mermaid, like in the first place. Um, nope. <laughs> and and then now we have also a lot of black people justifying why mermaids can be black. Yeah. <laughs> and let me just say this: Ariel is a fictional character, so she could pretty much be any race. <laughs> I mean, I remember. <laughs> When Zendaya uh, got the same kind of heat for being casted as MJ in Spider-Man. Like, people were upset um, about that. that, That's a comic character. But I was thinking, you know, the the character of the ancient one in Doctor Strange, that's an Asian man in the comic played by a white woman, Tilda Swinton, in the movie. I didn't hear a lot of conservatives offended. When Batman uh, Begins made Ra's al Ghul, a white guy, Liam Neeson, when the Lone Ranger remake had Tonto played by Johnny Depp, John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, a million white actors played Othello, Willem Dafoe, who is not Middle Eastern, playing Jesus. <laughs> I never heard any conservatives offended that we weren't being true to history. But cash a black woman as a mermaid, and suddenly we're not. <laughs> it's just it's just sad. Now, people are pulling out scientific facts or, you know, what are their scientific facts, I should say. But like, here's the thing that I find interesting. Like, there's a clip going around uh, now of Kiki Palmer. Uh, she was doing different fashion looks 
for Vogue. And in one of the looks, she was like kind of giving superhero vibes and it went a bit viral and everyone kept saying she should play a superhero. And a lot of people kept saying that um, she could be Storm in the next X-Men. And, and I felt like, you know, that's all that people can see, you know, because Storm has always been black. So a black woman should play Storm. But why can't she play Rogue or Jean Grey? Like these are fictional characters. And, you know, it, the issue with this really stems from, you know, the white gaze and also just black people are often being put in a box where it's like you could be this and only this. So, yeah. like, going back to the whole Little Mermaid thing, like, you know, that's why people can't really fathom this idea of a black mermaid. But what I, all I can say to those people is get used to it. Right. And like you said, like, you know, where was the energy when when white people have been able to play pretty much any role? And I'm not talking about, you know, fictional characters here. I'm talking about actual people like Angelina Jolie has played a biracial woman. Emma Stone has played an Asian woman before. And, you know, in the movie of the humans in the movie of the human stain, which is about being light skinned black and passing for white, it, it cast. Anthony Hopkins and Nicole Kidman. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I you know, and that's fine. Like, I mean, they're great actors. Like, you know, they're great actors. I say, let them, let them try. Okay, great. And that's not real representation, but I'm willing to see a great actor try. But the, I mean, it's a mermaid. You've got libertarians trying to argue scientifically how a mermaid couldn't possibly ever, I don't know, go up on the rocks and get a tan. <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about this. it's ridiculous that we are even having this conversation about, well, yes, mermaids can be black because, you know, they're they're in the sun. Like, it's just a ridiculous conversation. Like at the end of the day, like it's a fictional character. um, So it shouldn't matter. Like the race shouldn't matter if they were black, Asian. It's it's fictional character. But what I what I'm choosing to do is not get too wrapped up in this whole thing. I'm just excited for the younger generation of black girls that get to see um, a black little mermaid because I know what it meant for me seeing a black Cinderella when I was a little girl, when Brandy played right. Cinderella, you know, it just really made me realize that like anything is possible. So, oh, so I'm excited for this movie. Thea, thank you so, so much. And thank you for putting these racists in their place. They're all of course at home now watching Jake Gyllenhaal star in Prince of Persia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, goddess. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I hate hate this story, but I love this story. Thank you, Thea. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be open to phones at 866-997-4748. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. I'm John saying This is Sirius XM Progress. Hello to Jeff in L.A. Welcome. Mr. saying. I, I mean, what I have to say follows, I think, very well with what Theo Harper just said. I wouldn't have even known about that issue because I'm lucky enough to just listen to XM and streaming services where I watch documentaries and otherwise I'm about unions. So I just want to give a shout out real quick, like I told your screener, that's where the focus should be. Biden, Marty Walsh solved it. It shows that America can come together when $2 billion are at stake. I mean, that's what we should be talking about. I wouldn't even know that. And then I just, I want to know, and I wish there was a way to just insert this into everything these days. How, if the 
we always talk about the far left, the far right, the middle. No one even, I think, understands exactly what all that is. But I'll tell you what I believe is actually the center, which is we, we're called the far left, which is Eleanor Roosevelt, who's the primary author of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which clearly says, speaking of today with this immigration issue, Article 14 talks about the right to asylum. I right. mean, it, it, it's not the Universal Declaration on Human Rights also, which gives the right to join trade unions. It also says everyone should have protection against unemployment, equal yep. pay for equal work. I mean, yep. is this not the center? Why can we not? But we and need every nation, every every right nation on life. Earth signed it. Every nation on Earth signed it, and most ignore it. Everyone? Oh wow! Even Russia and China, huh? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you're you're just a prodigy. I, you would know, but but how do we get that out there? I mean, I'm tired of me calling the far. I am a far lefty because I believe in trade unions, because I believe in housing. It's in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And then you yeah. just made it even stronger. How do we get that to be the focus instead of discussing silly things like whether Ariel should be, I mean, there should be a documentary on Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal I agree. Well, Ken, Ken Burns did a pretty good one. Ken Burns did a pretty good one a couple of years ago about all the Roosevelts uh, and the whole last Do chapter. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. It was awesome. Fantastic. But I mean, just so focus good. on that. I, Annie, you're awesome. Thank you so much Thanks, for letting sir. me say my piece, taking me uh, two times in the week. You're kind. But Thank you. I, I, just, I just want to give a real shout out. Biden, you know, he might have these popularity you know, but he's gotten more done than Trump. All Trump did was with executive orders, and that's it. He solved yeah. this matter. He's gotten bills passed, and I'm urging him to get the PRO Act passed right now before, if, God forbid, the Republicans take back the House. And yeah. also, I want to give a shout-out to Gavin Newsom, and maybe that's why Abbott didn't send people over here, because I think Newsom would have taken it to bat, and he would have had it in the Supreme Court. And that's where that case should be, with sending people yeah. out of state. How is that even legal? If I Ron DeSantis, well, and Ron DeSantis, who is a doughy mediocrity, revoltingly fake Christian with no charisma <laughs> and thinks meanness is strength. Ron DeSantis's worst nightmare is debating an actual man like Gavin Newsom because Ron DeSantis is not a man. He's a coward. He's a bully. He's a fake Christian. And his supporters are people who love to be suckered. They opened wide for Bush and Cheney. They bent over for Bush. And now people like our friend Rob, the racist in Orlando, love to beg Mr. DeSantis if they can just kiss the tip. Send him money, clowns. Send him money, fools. Empty your bank account for your new MAGA king and wait and see how well it turns out for you. Oh, he's fighting for you so hard, little racist. Oh, Ron DeSantis is fighting to get your little racist dollars and votes. Look, I, there's there's going to be a lot of Republicans running for president after these midterms. They won't be, against you. He's a coward. A lot of Republicans are going to be running for president, and there's a very good chance a lot of Democrats are going to be running for president after these midterms. Let's see what happens. Jeff, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, a very special town hall, a full hour with our greatest documentary filmmaker, the man behind the Civil War, jazz and baseball, Ken Burns, to talk about his new film, which he has called the most important film he will ever make, The U.S. and the Holocaust. I don't want you to miss this, and you're going to want to see the film. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. 
just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Sirius XM Progress presents a town hall event for the new PBS documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Celebrated documentary filmmaker Ken Burns joins John Fugelsang to explore America's response to one of the greatest humanitarian crises of the 20th century and the lessons we continue to learn. Now your host, John Fugelsang. Welcome to SiriusXM, I'm John Fugelsang. In an age when America faces xenophobic nationalism that is actively trying to sanitize our history and limit what teachers can actually teach in school, our greatest documentary filmmaker has brought us another film that proves current events are not current. Ken Burns' new film, The U.S. and the Holocaust, isn't just about anti-Semitism, and there have been many films about the grotesque phenomena that claim the lives of two out of three European Jews. This is not like any documentary you've seen before. It's a film about immigration and fascism. It's about the struggle between our ideals and our actions. It's a film about what came before and what might still be. It is co-directed by his longtime collaborators, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. It's a beautiful script by Jeff Ward. It is available on PBS, pbs.org, and the PBS video app. It is an urgently contemporary film of terror and grace, and we are so honored to welcome back Ken Burns. Hey, John. Great to see you. It's great to see you as well. How are you? I'm good. We're in the middle of a promotional thing, so the idea of being able to sit down with you and have a real conversation is is a wonderful oasis in the midst of uh, the desert of very quick quick conversations and hits and things like that in the media world. It seems like, I mean, all your media tours are heroic and <laughs> I enjoy your media tours, but it seems like of all the films you've made, this one is the least suited for quick little tidy sound bites. Yeah, it's it's a problem. I've, I've said it many, many times and it's been misquoted and misunderstood, but I won't work on a more important film than this. It doesn't mean that I hope, sincerely hope, that previous films that we've done might be uh, as important and that films that we're working on now or might work on in the future would be as important, but I will never work on a film more important than this subject. I certainly don't think you'll ever make a film more urgent and contemporary than this one. You know, we've been working on it. I mean, the most interviewers uh, say, so why now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it takes seven years to make this film. And so if you think about where we were in 2015, it's a really different now than the now here. Every film we've made uh, always resonates in the present. And our job as filmmakers is to attend to the very complicated task of telling a multi-layered story, structuring and, and you know, various uh, scenes and how they go, the calibration of the images you show. There's always 40 times as much material as ends up in the finished thing. But as we were working on it, realizing that there were lots of rhymes, as Mark Twain might say, uh, in contemporary world, it began to become very, very clear that this was rhyming in spectacularly uncomfortable ways with today. And so we accelerated the production. I wanted to get this out into the conversation earlier, supposed to be out next year. I said, let's do it now. I think Sarah and Lynn were you know, handling a lot of day-to-day -day stuff were understandably no, but it was like, we have to do this. It's so important. There's a moment in the film when the great historian and Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens. I would, in my feeble way, like to add that the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. Because what we see in the example of the story that, that we happen to be telling is how quickly one of the greatest places on earth, if you wanted to be in the hippest place in film and in architecture and in music and in art and in conversation and stuff in 1930 and 31 and 32, mm -hmm. Berlin would Berlin. be the place in the world. And then the next year it's not. I mean, it's really... How, the fragility of our structures. You know, my last film was on 
Benjamin Franklin. And when the doors of the Constitutional Convention were swung open that hot summer of 1787, he walks out of what is now Independence Hall. He's approached by a, the leading woman uh, of, of, of Philadelphia, a woman named Elizabeth Willing Powell, whose rights, by the way, are not at all considered. She's a non-entity as far as the Constitution's considered. But she said, what have you created, Dr. Franklin, a monarchy or a republic? He says, a republic if you can keep it. And so there was in the original charge this sort of anxiety. But for 246 plus years through great crises like the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II, the institutions have had a kind of resiliency to them. We've been able to get through stuff. This is the fourth great crisis, I believe. It's silent. It's deadlier, um, kind of like a nerve gas that I think suggests that all good people should come to the aid of their country, that that we have a democracy in need of saving before it's lost. And a lot of that uh, comes from the rhymes of the story yes. that we've been struggling seven years to tell. Well, it does show how precarious the very concept of civilization can be. And of course, there are many parallels to be drawn, which I want to cover with what's happened in our country with Viktor Orban, with what Mr. Putin exactly. has done. And it's amazing seeing people say, oh, this film is so contemporary, which of course it is. But every time we've spoken, you always list all the films you're working on simultaneously. Yeah. And it's always very impressive. This film, I believe, began... Uh, in 2015. Yes. And I'm curious, what were the origins? I've always wondered, what is it that makes you decide you and your team are going to commit years of your life to a to Muhammad Ali, yeah. to the Roosevelts, to this concept? It's always a kind of, it's not kind of, uh, you know, it's not a uh, marketing strategy. You know, it's kind of a gut strategy. It's like, how come you fell in love with that person? Why is that person your best friend? <laughs> really? You well, didn't do Ben Franklin for the ratings? Really? <laughs> and, and, and it had the best ratings of, of Hemingway and Ali and, and you know, ever since um, the, the country music series yes. that came out in 2019. So you never know. You just, you don't do it that way. You just, it's a kind of a gut feeling. So the antecedents of this are pretty interesting. Sarah and Lynn and I made a film written by Jeffrey Ward. Thank you for acknowledging his beautiful script in this, in this case. It's, a, it's stunning. Um, we made a film on the Second World War called The War that came out in 2007. And, after, and it had a pretty significant scene on the Holocaust. Very powerful and very moving, I thought. And when it was over, a lot of people came up to us and say, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do this? And how come we didn't do this? And wasn't so-and-so an, uh, an anti-Semite? And what was this? Yeah. They were sort of filled with a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation, a lot of conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. And at that point, we kind of looked at each other and said, whoa, you know, we really have to do something that shows what America's relationship is to the Holocaust. And so, you know, there's hundreds of ideas you're thinking about. They're in your head. And when they drop down into your heart or your gut, you do it. F seven years later, without Lynn or Sarah, Jeff and I made a film on the history of the Roosevelts. Had an even more modest scene about the yes. Holocaust. But those same questions came up. So we really looked at each other and said, we really have to do it. And then Lynn bumped into a, a guy who worked, used to work at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And he said, you know, we're, we're going to mount this exhibition called Americans in the Holocaust. You guys ever think about doing a film of, of, of along that? We said, yeah, we're thinking about it. And so we worked parallel to them. They were very helpful in pointing us to scholars that are, you know, reputable, not with access to grind, to archives as we can find ourselves and, and to survivors. And so there wasn't a day probably in the last two years where we haven't gotten on the phone and talked to at least one of their scholars to, to, to make sure we're getting everything yes. right. And we invited them into every step of the process. It was a great association. But the, the genesis is in trying to understand that while Americans have conveniently convinced themselves that with an ocean and a continent apart, we're not engaged in the Holocaust, and we are not responsible or complicit in any way in the Holocaust. However, the ideas that fed the Holocaust are ideas that are also American ideas, yes. not purely our own, but are endemic to human behavior, and that it was really important for us to sort of set a table of the circumstances that America finds itself in as we approach the regime of Adolf Hitler and the subsequent consequences of that evil regime and the ways in which we did not act uh, 
uh, in the ways we could have acted to save human beings and the way in which, as, as you've correctly pointed out, the sort of relevance of this story to today and the threats on democratic systems and the appeal for people in crises to authoritarians, I alone can fix it, Yes, uh, is... Um, a scary thing. And you begin to see the fragility, the writer, Daniel Mendelssohn, who did a really great service. You know, when you say 6 million, it's just completely opaque, right? Correct. There's, there's no way to access that. It's abstract. It's like saying, well, slavery would have died out in a generation and a half. And you go, okay, how, do you <laughs> so, want to so try how that? how many millions more lives do would you, you submit to bondage? Yes. And would you like to try that for a generation and a half? How about a decade? How yeah. about a year? How about a month? How oh, about a, a week? a few more generations could have put up with it. Yeah. We hear this all the time. So the abstraction of the six million requires us, as he says, Daniel Mendelssohn says, to particularize it. So, you know, we start out with the, the Anne Frank story. Her father is trying to get in. Nobody knows that. We just, most kids' access to the Holocaust, most people's access is through that extraordinary diary, which is not about the Holocaust. It's Correct. about the lead up to her experience in the Holocaust and the death of all but her father, including herself, in this conflagration. Um, He's trying to get into the United States. The dad at Otto Frank is trying to get into the United States, but we don't want him in. He's got all the connections. He's got all the I's dotted and T's crossed. He's got the money. He's got the verification. He's not going to be a public charge. And the State Department keeps changing the rules, raising the bar, moving the goalposts. And, and what would it mean if Anne Frank was here today? What if you could interview Anne Frank at, 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 at this town hall? What if her children had invented a cure for some disease? Exactly. What if they'd written a symphony that we all appreciated? What if they were extraordinary writers, gifted writers like their mom? I mean, we don't know that. So Daniel Mendelssohn took six of his relatives, his great uncle Schmiel Jaeger, who came from a provincial town in, in eastern Poland, and his wife and their four daughters, and particularizes what who they were, what their lives were like, and how they all were murdered. Only one in a gas chamber, which I think will come as a shock to many in, in the audience, because it certainly did to me and to Lynn and to Sarah, how many people were killed in what is now called the Shoah by bullets. Yes. That how many people were just shot in the head and dumped in a ditch. You know, and I mean mass killings. And we have footage of that, trophy footage from... The footage I'd never seen. It's and just, it's chilling. And you have to be careful. As you notice, we just wiped out the soundtrack. No. Yes. No, no effects to make the newsreel come alive, no music, no nothing. Just look at this stuff. Let's not privilege it in any way other than it's raw information that we have to know still as well as 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 uh, moving pictures. I deeply appreciate that the film focuses heavily on the fact that the Holocaust, the six million were not all gas chambers yes. and that there were millions killed before that even began. Well, we say concentration camps. They're concentration camps in Germany. Yeah, that's one and people kind. die there and they're crematoria to bury them, but they're slave laborers and they're being worked to death or, or starved to death or they die of despair. In Nazi-occupied Poland, there are six killing centers, yes. of which we know Auschwitz and Treblinka and, and uh, Belzic and Sobibor and Chelmno. These are, these are horrific places designed to bring people there and to gas them and to kill them. But before that happens, there are two million killed just by being shot in the head in Poland, in Lithuania, in Latvia, in the Ukraine, in Belarus, in in Russia proper. Uh, it's you know as the as the Germans advance, um, and, and that has to be known. And another statistic we have to, as Americans, not to bias any time or our or not make us regret what we did not do, but three quarters of the victims of the Holocaust are are murdered before we have a single boot on the ground in Europe, meaning yes, in Sicily. That's right. And and more than that are killed by the time we have an air base in Italy that would allow us uh, conceptually to make a run to Auschwitz and back on a single tank of gas and, and do what? You know, bomb rail lines that could be replaced overnight. Our precision bombing was also not so precise. And so 80% of bombs in Europe dropped, fell outside of five miles of their intended target. Auschwitz was, a part of Auschwitz was bombed accidentally by That's Allied right. bombers trying to bomb an IG Farben synthetic rubber plant more than five miles away from Auschwitz. They ended up 
you know, bombing a couple of years, a huge, sprawling, yes. unbelievable I mean, America complex. did bomb Auschwitz. It was just yeah. accidental, Accident. which I never knew yeah. before this And film. then it begs the question, you know, Elie Wiesel, who was there, um, said, you know, I would have liked to be bombed, you yeah. know, to stop the killing. Um, Others, uh, inmates remember the sheer terror, the idea that they might be bombed before as they knew the Russians were coming and were going to liberate them or hoped that they could liberate them before they were all killed. And then the question becomes an even more fraught one. You know, it's just spiritual in its dimensions. Like, are you, are, as the scholar Rebecca Erbelding says, are you the people that knew it was there and didn't bomb it? Or are you the people who knew it was there and bombed it? Yeah, I mean, you just there's there's at some point a kind of disengagement, no win situation. But these are the kind of questions that in our normal conversation become just kind of badminton games, a kind of binary yes, no stuff where everything is super complicated. There's undertow, the presumption, yeah. oh, FDR is an anti-Semite. Well, it's much that. more common. That, you know, Well, if he's the anti-Semite that you say he is, why is it that? The, the the raging anti-Semites of the day all called him Frank D. Rosenfeld and called his signature domestic policy the, the Jew, Jew deal. deal. So, well, you know, he's not without blame, but he's, he, I mean, not without faults. And he could have spoken a lot lou louder. He could possibly have used his office to do something. But what you had was laws and a Congress and various branches of the executive just you know, stultifying in that. And, and more important, I think, that's imp it, it, that has to be said, is an American people disinterested in helping in any way, shape, or form. Of course. After Kristallnacht in, in November of 38, 86% uh, of, of Protestants, 85% of Catholics, and 25% of American Jews don't want to let any more in. When everything is finally revealed, when the newsreels from the liberated concentration camps in Germany show the stacks of bodies like cordwood and the emaciated stick figures barely alive, you know, um, only 5% of Americans want to let in more yeah, refugees. after we saw the footage. But what's very urgent about this film is that it is about America and the Holocaust, but it begins long before Hitler's rise to power. In the first 10 minutes of the movie, you do take care to note that America received more Jewish refugees than any other nation, that America, uh, of course, focused on ending the Holocaust by ending the war, um, which I, I think a lot of folks will appreciate. And it certainly uh, it may be more palatable for some to, to be reminded early on of all that America did, because the film does not hesitate in criticizing our government officials. But what's so striking is that it's really the first part about the antecedents to the Holocaust yes. that began right here. What did Hitler and the Nazis learn from the United States policies? It's, it's a sad commentary. Uh, Hitler greatly admired the way we had taken care of our Native American problem, he thought it was. He had ambitions going east. He saw our conquering of the Far West as comparable to his conquering of the Far East. He did not see the Slavic people and the Jewish people in his way as actual people or citizens. He considered them stateless and, and to be brushed aside to give Germany the Lebensraum. So he admired that we had exterminated or had isolated into concentration camps, we call them reservations, the native populations of the United States. And um, he also loved our anti-immigration bill, the Johnson-Reed bill that That's was right. passed in 1924, which was a reaction to the essentially open borders from 1870 to 1920 when millions and millions of people came in, including a number of Jews. New York City had more Jews, a quarter of New York City's population was Jewish, and it had more Jews than any other place on earth, any other city on earth. And there was a big backlash. And so the Ku Klux Klan sort of added to their resume and said, well, we're anti-Catholic and we're anti-Jewish too. And they marched on Washington with all their hoods and capes and stood on the steps of the Capitol and newsreels and photographs and stuff like that. So we have 
and with the African slave trade and the, the, the notion that in a country dedicated to, that all men are created equal, the guy who wrote that owned hundreds of human beings. Exactly. We have a legacy of racism, of the extermination of the indigenous population or the isolation and, uh, of that population. And we have just inherited raging anti-Semitism that is promoted by, you know, Henry Ford, who thinks Jews mm -hmm. are responsible for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He buys a newspaper, the Dearborn Michigan Independent, and he and he promotes the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is the worst racist Incredible. tract, the Bible still to this day to anti-Semites yes. in the United States and all through the internet, a, a forgery, a hoax of, of the Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. He prints it and then publishes it in a book that's translated into German. And, and on top of this, you overlay eugenics, which is this pseudoscience, John, that says yes. that you can rank races and ethnicities you know, top to bottom. At the top would be what Hitler calls the Aryans. We would call the Nordic or the, the Northern European white race, Protestant, whatever. So the Johnson-Reed Act is sort of a response, a kind of uh, legislative response to the idea of limiting immigration, putting quotas, bigger quotas for those better people yes. and and less minuscule quotas for those people that might have overwhelmingly Catholic or specifically overwhelmingly Jewish populations, though they don't mention it. It's just how unfortunate that Poland, you know, Germany has, I think, 560,000 Jews, right? More than half get out. Austria has 190,000 Jews. Poland alone has 3.3 million. So the idea is you drive them out, but then when you start taking over territory, you have only, more. You have way more, and so you're in this kind of dilemma. You, you you want more territory, but you're getting more Jews, and you're not knowing what to do with them. So then you decide, well, the thing to do right now is not to make life miserable for them and get them out. And meanwhile, the countries are strained, like the United States, supposedly, and can't let them in. The final straw is the depression, right, which makes everybody desperate and everybody susceptible to the message of authoritarians yep. that they can make the trains run on time, Quick that solutions. we can solve this problem this way. And guess what? Here's why you're in the situation. It's them. Yeah. So there's there, what I'd say to the eugenicists is there's only one race. That's the human race. There's no distinction. The distinction between races is actually a biological fiction, as we say mm -hmm. so in the film. And so can we just get over this distinction? And, and of course, that extends to ethnicities. Everybody's a human being. Everybody's the same. And so, you know, it's, it, it, we're, this is the perfect ingredient for a madman. Uh, th that is yeah. not unfamiliar today, the authoritarian impulse uh, to, to say that the reason why we lost the First World War, folks, the reason why we're in this economic disaster are the Jews. We, we, were, we were blinded from within by that, and they're doing that now, and we're on the, uh, on the cusp of civil war, so you need to give me dictatorial powers. And interestingly enough, though the Nazis at their height only polled before the regime of Hitler, 35% max, the conservatives, understanding that there would be, there was a progressive majority that they were going to lose power, um, put him in, installed him, thinking we can control this guy. Sound familiar? And then acquiesced in the face of it. Do we wish to lose power or do we buy his big lie? You quote in the film, well, early in the film, one of your interviewees, historian Peter Hayes, asserts that excluding people is as American apple pie. And you have Paul Giamatti read the words of uh, Thomas Bailey Aldrich in his poem where he said, Oh, liberty, white goddess, is it well to leave the gates unguarded? This is a very short hop, skip and a jump from there to why can't we get immigrants from Norway and not these shithole countries. We have to take a very quick break, but when we come back, I want to go deeper into the research of the film and how you found the experts, as well as the casting of it. We'll be right back with our very special town hall for Ken Burns for his essential new film, The U.S. and the Holocaust, on Sirius XM. Welcome back to the Sirius XM Town Hall with Ken Burns and John Fugelsang on Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127. Welcome back to Sirius XM's Town Hall with Ken Burns discussing his amazing and powerful and brutal and graceful new film, The U.S. and the Holocaust. I watched this film with a friend of mine who was visiting from Philly. And as we watched Charles Lindbergh, as we watched Father Coughlin, my friend, who is not a student of history, 
was shocked. And she kept saying, it's just like now. It's just like now. It seems that even though we are a nation made up of immigrants, human nature remains rather constant on these matters. It does. You know, when we were working on our film on prohibition, Lynn and Sarah and I were fond of repeating uh, a, a verse from Ecclesiastes, which is the Old Testament, by the way. Yes. Um, and it says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun which seems to suggest that human nature doesn't change. And so let's also acknowledge the good side of us. But there's also that side that is perfectly happy with othering someone different than ourselves or permitting people to convince us that there's a them instead mm -hmm. of just a singular us. You know, I've been making films about the U.S. for almost 50 years, but I've really been making films about us. And what I understood is there's only us there's no them, and whenever anyone tells you there's a them, run away. Um, unfortunately, human beings don't do that because there's something soothing. There's a kind of anxiety that we have in economic stressful times and just our own individual spirituality. We know that none of us get out of here alive. Simple answers can become very attractive to people and become very attractive very quickly, but the price of them is like selling your soul to the devil. We have all of these uh, Faustian uh, mythologies because we see how easy it is for the human psyche to be tempted by, more often than not, its riches or some sort of accoutrement of life that seems to offer something more than the inevitable and unpredictable vicissitudes that visit all of us. Yes, And so... Um, we've got to be on guard. This is happening now. Father Coughlin sounds like uh, a Rush Limbaugh or a, um, you know, a Mark Levin or a Tucker Carlson. Um, Charles Lindbergh sounds like, you know, the latest politician who sort of sold his soul to this idea. He's a virulent anti-Semite. He's leading, he's the leading spokesperson for the largest anti-war. And you and I come from a certain age where that was not such a, a bad thing to be against. Anti-war movement in United States history, which was the America First thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, America First, that sounds familiar. Um, Hitler used to travel by a private plane to various mid-sized and smaller cities in Germany, always hoping to get back to one of his own places to spend the night and would be talking about restoring Germany's greatness. Um, you know, there are authoritarian playbooks that we have to just sort of realize become very attractive to people. You know, if, if for example, poor whites and poor blacks ever compared notes. Yeah. Well, this they... is what the great fear of, of the autocrats, the, the, you know, the, the oligarchs, you know, in the yep. South, that was the plantation owners. You got, you got poor Southern whites who are still in the Confederate army, That's right? Correct. It's still going on. And by the way, that Confederate flag is not the flag of the Confederacy. It's, it's one battle. battle flag of the one of many battle flags of the Army of Northern Virginia. But it was the only flag adopted by the Ku Klux Klan. So mm -hmm. this, when we argue this, there's just no argument. And all those statues went up. After. Yeah, after Reconstruction collapsed and the losers wrote the history that Reconstruction was bad, that the Civil War wasn't about this and Jim Crow was brutally – and the flag, not the Confederate flag, but the, the flag the of the flag. Ku Klux Klan worked its way into many of the state flags of the Confederacy after 1954. What happened in 1954 that would provoke that kind of exactly. reactionary thing? Brown versus Board of Education declaring that segregating school children on the basis of color – is unconstitutional. And of course, the poor, hard hardworking, conservative white folks can still be called to do the bidding of the wealthy plantation owners right. if and they tell they, them who they, to blame for their misfortune. They fought in the Confederate army and died by the, in the tens and tens and hundreds of thousands and continued to fight that battle voting consistently against their self-interest and against the self-interest of the values of a democratic system, which, by the way, has many, many flaws and many, many frustrating aspects. But as someone said, you know, it's really, you know, it's the most messed up form of government except all the other forms of government. And the parallels are there, but 
what makes the film great is that it's not propaganda. It, it means nothing without storytelling. So, it so has to here, be about storytelling. Thank you. So, uh, you know, I had meant to a few minutes ago just say this. I have been a fan since a, a dear friend of mine uh, told me this a few years ago that the novelist Richard Powers had written in his book, The Overstory. He says, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. Yeah. So as storytellers, we're obligated to call balls and strikes. If Roosevelt's good here, he's good here. If we're good here, we're good here. We saved more people, 225, we admitted more people, 225,000 people, more than any other sovereign nation. Um, but at moments of when we could have brought in more, if we had just taken this pernicious quota system and brought in the number of people we could have brought in from the quota system, we could have saved five times as many. Yeah. That's a big difference. 225,000 and a million plus 1.1 million, you know, that's a lot. And, and I'd still say maybe that wasn't a failure. Maybe doing 10 times would have been a pretty good thing to do. But there are other exigencies that are operating on Roosevelt that are operating within the State Department in little fiefdoms of uh, implacable anti-Semitism in the Congress, which is voting the will of the American people that's that right. do not want to let anybody in. Exactly. In those American people who have been convinced this, who are sort of been brought up in a kind of uh, even at best a kind of casual anti-Semitism, if not a virulent anti-Semitism. And there's a racism that goes along with it. There's what demagogues always appeal to is a native and nativist and anti-immigrant sentimentality. And so this is a perfect brew. And you add, as I said before, eugenics and an economic dislocation of the scale of the Great Depression. You are in for some deep doo-doo and some, some real horrible results well, coming from it. Today, we have the Christian refugees at our southern border we call illegals. Right. So the system keeps repeating itself. But it's uh, interesting that the Johnson-Reed Act didn't say anything about anybody in the Americas because yeah. it was just a free flow across the border of people working the agricultural system. Well, as it's you point out, open borders, open borders was the U.S. way of life exactly. for centuries. And that we were closing it for everybody but Hispanics, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, we started regulating Hispanics. We'd done it before when we repatriated what turned out to be you know, many, many people who were already American citizens. So it's, it's, it's so complicated and our, our history is so sordid. I mean, I could sit here with you and would be happy to and make a case for the United States government and therefore its people having been the greatest force of good in the history of the world. And yeah. list beginning with the Declaration and without the Constitution denying the and sins, the Bill without of Rights. Denying the without denying the atrocities. De no, no, without denying all the sins and atrocities. Just walk us through from the, from the Declaration to uh, the Affordable Care Act and the most recent legislation about climate change. Mm -hmm. And just say, these are my cards. It's a better hand, I would argue, than almost probably any other country on earth. And that does feed our sense of exceptionalism. But what we don't say is, as the Germans have wrestled for decades and done a really good job of self-examination, because we're the greatest, we don't examine, which is strange. Because if you're exceptional, say in sports, you're incredibly self-critical, right? The coach doesn't come out and say, I know we lost 62 to nothing, but our defense is wonderful and our, and our, and our offense really is great and our special teams were, you know, no, you say we sucked. Yeah. Right. And so there are lots of places where we sucked. It's not a lot and of room it, for nuance in Manifest Destiny. There's not. A, there's no room for no. I'm just finishing a film on the, that'll be out next year on the history of the American buffalo. And it's about the story of the most magnificent land mammal in North America, who for thousands of generations, some people, native populations used from the tail to the snort. Yes. And it was sustainable and was in, by the time Lewis and Clark and the early 19th century came through, was in the tens, I mean, in the 30s of millions of, of beasts. By the end of the 1880s, a decade of slaughter, principally, they, people couldn't find them anymore. They were on the brink of extinction. And it was a policy, it was economic, people wanted the leather for this, the heads for trophy, this, the skins for warmth, whatever it might be. But it was also a deliberate policy to essentially remove the main staple of the Plains Indians. Like we, we moved west, we went to the west, we passed through native territory, then we thought, we need to fill this up too. So we needed to get rid of the Plains Indians. And what do you do? Get rid of their main source of food. What did you and your team learn in your research about the day-to-day -day life 
of Jewish and non-Jewish prisoners, because thank you for mentioning that there were many non-Jews murdered as well. But life in the camps, what was a surprise to even you? I don't know how you could paint this situation any worse. Um, it's very interesting, John, that you brought that up because we don't have footage. We have a few blurry photographs smuggled out of Auschwitz. That's it. And they don't really illuminate much other than the bravery of the people who took them, all of whom died. So we can only rely on the statement of people. And because most of those killing centers were destroyed by the retreating Germans, so there'd be no evidence of their crimes as they left Nazi-occupied Poland, Auschwitz remains or parts of Auschwitz remain. And we were able to tell the story of one survivor, a woman named Eva Geiringer, a young yes. girl named Eva Geiringer. If you just think about none of the women had periods, all of them you know, used a hole, cement hole, no privacy lined up by, you know, a row of holes for going to the bathroom, you know, 60 in one side, 60 on the other, um, sleeping in, in pallets, triple decker bunks, um, having, you know, people going crazy, no, no medications, obviously, being starved to death, being worked to death, dying of despair, throwing themselves against electrified barbed wire and bursting in fire. If somebody tried to escape, they were hung in front of everybody Correct. before them. It's just, there's a moment when they get left behind by retreating Germans who are moving everybody that they can to head west, back to Germany. And they just say, no, her mother is too sick to move. And so they just stay there. And then all of a sudden, there's sort of sporadic shooting. And they, she goes out and she sees what she thinks is initially a bear. And it's a Russian soldier. And at that point, you know, you just weep because it means they're going to live, right? There's yeah. a Russian soldier. And he goes, holy shit, I got to go back. And then there's more fighting. And she works her way after several hours over the men's section to try to, to, find, try to find her, find father. her father and her brother. Can't find them, but sees a guy she kind of recognized. She's been in Amsterdam and hiding and knows and is, you know, not best friends, but very close friends with Anne Frank. Yes. There's Otto Frank. Have you seen my wife? Have you seen my girls? Margot and, and Annalise or Anne. They're gone. They've been taken away. The wife, they die. The brother and the father of Eva are alive. But Fritzi is there. And then this little trio, saved by the Russians, by the Soviets, move to the Crimea and then get back and try to rebuild their lives. It is in the particularizing that Eva gives to us, one of the greatest gifts I think we've ever had as filmmakers, that you understand exactly what happens. You, can, you can't say six million anymore with that kind of abstraction. Exactly. That's, that's important. It's very beautiful as well to see a film that tells us about Otto Frank's life after the Holocaust as the only survivor of his family, um, and not just the publication of the diary. And when he finally was able to bring himself to read his late daughter's diary, but also how he, like so many, was able to build a new life yeah. and marry and in a way be able to start over again yeah. or at least continue on. You know, Guy Stern, who was sent by his parents out of this Hildesheim uh, German uh, town, small city, uh, sent to the United States and his job was to get his parents back and he couldn't do it. He worked and tried and whatever. And he finally joined the United States Army and went and, you know, found out his parents. We even have footage of his parents being taken away. We have footage. You can see his mother and you can see his father. Had he seen that before? Learned from that. He's, he has seen that. He's amazing. He's 100 years old. Yeah. But he just helped explain. He said that as a GI, after the liberation of the concentration camps, he was ordered, as Eisenhower or, ordered commanders to send their troops there to go and look at what was happening. And he remembered breaking down and crying because uh, he couldn't stand it, looking over at a big Protestant MP, the toughest sergeant that he knew in the war, who's bawling like a baby. And he said, we couldn't take it, but they could. Yeah. Meaning the perpetrators and the survivors and the victims. And it's just, it's a really heroic thing because I don't think we, we think of the, of, 
of, of a kind of passivity and being rounded up and killed, and it's not. There are people who still, to the last moment, don't know what's going to happen to them, and there is heartfelt sense by those people who are realizing what is going to happen to them, you know, letters that we have read. Um, one of them that struck me terribly of a, of a man writing to a friend saying, you know, essentially, I'm going to my death. I just want the world to know that someone named David Berger lived. Yes. And and that's, again, to borrow from the writer Daniel Mendelssohn, the particularizing that we're required in this to do. That is to say, a top-up, uh, a bottom-up story, as well as a top-down story. Yeah. That you can understand the geopolitical stuff, you can understand American politics, you can, but to understand what American people felt in all this polling that took place at the time and, and a relatively new thing, but a really great snapshot of who we were, but also more importantly, what is happening to the victims of the Holocaust. Guy Stern is a, a beautiful figure in this film. Gunther. Guy is his Americanized name. Right. Um, I want to ask a, a filmmaking question because um, the witnesses you have, the survivors are incredible and you always find experts and historians to grace your films. Um, and on a casting level as well, it's always remarkable to see which actors wish to lend their talents to your work. This one is sort of a, a, a who's who of people who we've seen before with your films. Meryl Streep returns as Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. Paul Giamatti, as I met. You even get Werner Herzog. Yeah. So Werner, your in, in our jazz film, Werner, who I've been friends with for 30 plus years, a, a real mutton Jeff kind of thing. He and I are so different. And he's become a great documentarian. He, and he uh, is a phenomenal documentarian. And we're so different in the way we approach. And he understands it. He says, uh, I was on a panel with him, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And he said, uh, you know, I am interested in an ecstatic truth, which means he breaks every kind of rule possible, which I would never, a line I would never cross, and does so brilliantly and with great artistic skill. And he said, and my friend Ken here is interested in an emotional truth, which I plead guilty to. I remember trying to raise money for my first film called Brooklyn Bridge. And I said that I was, I was not so much interested in the dry dates and facts and events of the past as I was in its emotional archaeology. Now, I do not mean I feel... It's really important, John, for me to say I'm not interested in sentimentality or nostalgia, which is the enemy of good anything. Yes. I'm interested in those higher emotions that are activated when one and one doesn't equal two, but three. And that's what we look for in sex, what we look for in spirituality, what we look for in our music, in our art, um, is that kind of improbable calculus. And that's, even our founders talked about the higher emotions that would be released if people were allowed to govern themselves. Another nice shout out for democracies. And for storytelling as well. And for storytelling as well. Because it wouldn't work as propaganda, but having these stories, no. having these no, people here allows so anyway, you to feel those higher emotions. Werner is our go-to Nazi. <laughs> and, and he read a horrific, horrific quote uh, in jazz about the N-word Jew music that, yes. that Americans had invented. I should also mention the lovely narration of Peter Coyote. Every film, I'm like, oh, will this be a Peter Coyote or a Keith David film? Yes, well, you know, it, 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 it often depends on where we're swinging, if it's intensely uh, African-American in its storytelling, of which, I mean, race is a theme in every film. I mean, I could count on the figures of, of one hand those films that, that don't deal with race because you cannot, you cannot sort of go beneath the surface of American history without running into our glaring contradiction. As I said before, the guy who articulated, distilled a century of enlightenment thinking into one sentence that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the hypocrisy or contradiction. So exactly. that's our story. Uh, and I am sticking with that story uh, because it is is an important thing to do. I've taken a lot of criticism from critics and from friends even and from some scholars who, you know, particularly when Barack Obama was inaugurated uh, in January 20th, uh, 2009, they said, now will you shut up? Will you stop talking about race? You're kidding. Because we're post-racial. I said, I held up the Onion magazine, which uh, newspaper, which said, black man given worst job in nation. That was their headline. And I just said, just watch and see what happens. Exactly. Just watch and see what happens. And to their credit, most have come back and said, sorry, you're right. This is central to us. Like none of us 
people of my complexion do not worry going to the convenience store. Exactly. But there is not an African-American male that does not have in the back of his mind. And now, recently, female who, do I come home alive? And, and to be fair, white America is raised in this bubble where yeah. if we're lucky, we are taught how rough people have it. If we're lucky, we're aware of the injustice. If we're lucky, we learn to navigate and live with and fight against the contradictions and hypocrisies. But many of us are very comfortable being in that bubble and ignoring the we, suffering. We made a us. film on the Central Park Five. My daughter Sarah and my son-in-law David, which McMahon. ran in theaters, it was and great. It, it did have a theatrical release. And you know, the thing I would say is, you know, like this film. It's the only two films where I say, in, you know, I can't say enjoy it. Right? Uh, you just can't. There's, this is not a film to enjoy. But I just wanted the Central Park Five to be an exception, right? Like a, a singular event. It's happened. Thousands of times exactly. in American history and, and that you want George Floyd to be, oh man, that was so bad. Let's hope that never happens again. It's just, it's the fact that it's a kind of currency of the realm is what ought to be so discouraging to us, or at least if not discouraging to galvanize us in a positive way. I mean, um, Chris Rock says, you know, I'm a multimillionaire. You wouldn't trade places with yeah. me for a second. Yeah. There's not a white man in here who would trade places with me and I'm rich. It's true. It, one of the themes of the film, one of the major illustrations of the, of the work is if you give a tyrant what they want, so they'll behave, they'll see you as weak. That's right. How do you feel about that today in relation to people like Mr. Putin, Mr. Orban, Mr. Trump? It's, it's, this is the kind of lawful behavior, right? Yeah. Uh, shame is not part of the vocabulary. And so if you give them an inch, they will take more the next time. And that's what happens. Germany's delighted when certain things happen and people are outraged, but nobody does anything about it. So you go, okay, if we can take the Rhineland, the sort of the no man's land of mostly German speaking people, that's a buffer after World War I between France and Germany, Right. If we can take the Rhineland and people say, oh, we protest, but nothing happens, why don't we take Austria? And then why don't we take the Sudan, Sudetenland, the German-speaking area of, of exactly. Western Czechoslovakia? And while we're at it, let's take all of Czechoslovakia. Wow. And oh, we'll make a treaty with the Russians, and then guess what? We'll divide up the territory. They can come in from the east, and we'll come from the west, and we'll divide up Poland, and that will be great. And then oh... We'll renege on that and we'll try to go all the way to Moscow. I mean, the problem is the distances, like Napoleon, he runs into the same problem, cold winters. And, you know, this, the, the Second World War was won. I've now switched from the Holocaust for a second to the Second World War. It won on American manufacturing, yes. Soviet sacrifice, and then what? was taking place by the rest of the allies in the in western southern and western europe in their activities but it's you know we out manufactured the enemy and um soviets were willing to lose unspeakable number of human beings in defense of their their country and then to move it west and the kind of paranoia that has been attendant to them makes them susceptible to um, the idea of existential threats from outside. And therefore, of course. if there are existential threats from outside, it really behooves us not to have a Mikhail Gorbachev or a Boris Yeltsin, but to have a former KGB guy running it and telling you. And now he's run into his own kind of buzzsaw, which is the spirit of a democratic people saying, not here. And mm -hmm. while we can lament and be very worried, and we should not for a second reduce that worry at all about the fragility of Western democracies and being out of favor, particularly when in the midst of NATO is a Viktor Orban type, now the darling of the American ultra conservatives, um, we have seen a coalition of democratic people come together and the United States, most of all, Joe Biden, most of all, has made sure that they not only had their guns, in Ukraine, That's right. but they had our intelligence, our eyes and ears. And oh, yes. We are behind the success of the Ukrainian army against the invading Russians, who, by the way, accuse the Ukrainians who are led by a Jewish man. That's right. Of being Nazi fascists. And if Lindbergh were here, he'd say, just give him the Donbass region. Exactly. It'll be fine. Everything will be fine. Well, you know what I always say, Ken? 
those who do not learn from history are doomed to watch the History Channel. Um, <laughs> no, I kid the History Channel. Um, you are right, sir, in saying this is not a film you enjoy, but this is a film that must be seen. It is a film you will not be sorry for seeing. It is a film you will want every American to watch. The U.S. and the Holocaust, a film by Ken Burns, uh, is now streaming on PBS.org. It can be seen on PBS, and it is on the PBS Video Player app. I can't wait to see what comes next. I'm looking forward to the Buffalo film, and... I just want to thank you for all you do for history, for all you do for cinema, for storytelling. You make me proud to be an American and you make films for Americans who aren't afraid of the truth and yearn for it, no matter what it reveals about us. Yeah, just call balls and strikes. And, and this is a film by uh, Lynn Novick and, and Sarah Botstein. As well, your co-directors. Uh, my co-directors, and it's equally theirs. And, and as you did at the beginning, I, I still want to also just stress how extraordinarily beautiful if that's the right word, it is. Uh, Jeffrey Ward's script is. I can only imagine. I've, I've heard about you reading the scratch track. I cried. I broke down. It's the only time I've ever done it. The only film where I've actually cried. And in Funny Things, you know, when Edgar Maurer, a Chicago journalist, is escorted out in 33 for writing bad things about Hitler. He understood. His minder who's putting him on the train says, you ever think you'll come back to Germany? He says, with two million of my fellow countrymen. Or when you see Varian Fry, a writer in New York City, who risks his life, $3,000 strapped to his, his ankle, and he goes to Marseille, and he starts working with a vice consul, and he starts getting people out. And among the people in one group are Wanda Landowska, the harpsichordist, um, Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp, uh, Marc Chagall. Yes. I mean, you just go, these are the people that the Germans are about to take from the French and ship them to the killing centers, and they, we got them out. And so, you know, and just sometimes the sheer evil of this plan, the idea that it could be so industrialized that bureaucrats could become you know, as evil as anything else. You, you got to make sure that somebody's, those train cars are switching when they're coming from here, yeah. from here loaded with their Jewish the cargo. It's, it's too much. Well, thank you. Thank your entire team for the humanity and for this great art. Everyone, please see the U.S. and the Holocaust. Thank you very much for joining us on Sirius XM. Ken Burns, as always, thank you. Thank you. Peace. Peace.